Bible Church, this morning, you uh, have the privilege uh, of getting to hear uh, a sermon this morning from Craig Gant. Uh, Craig is, yeah, there we go, Thomas. Craig <laughs> is, uh, he is a, a member of this church. Uh, you guys probably recognize him uh, standing just over here, helping lead our music from time to time. Uh, Craig is also someone who studied at seminary, uh, who has experience in preaching, and uh, so we invited him this Sunday to uh, preach to us from Jonah 3. Um, you know, I'm really excited to hear him, not only because he has this tremendous beard, which just <laughs> communicates a sense of gravitas to him. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but what you need in a preacher most of all, the, the greatest uh, characteristic any preacher needs, is someone who has experienced Jesus deeply themselves and has reflected on Christ this week as they prepare to preach. Uh, and that's Craig. Uh, he is a man who knows the gospel well, has experienced it in his life and is excited to get to share that with you this morning. So I, I am excited to get to sit under his preaching and for all of us this morning uh, to get to benefit from Craig. So Craig, let me pray, pray for us and uh, for you and uh, as you prepare to preach. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we open up God's word right now, we pray that you would help us uh, make Jesus clear to us, make Jesus real to us. We are, we are a needy group this morning. We are, we are too needy for religion or a list of, of rules. What we need uh, is the free mercy of God in the gospel. What we need is the uncommon love of Jesus. So we pray that you would help us uh, to experience that, to receive that through the preached word right now and send us out of here today. Uh, with the hope of Christ's cross and resurrection in our communities. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning and to be able to open up God's word with you and talk about the book of Jonah, to make much of God in, as he has revealed himself there. And so over the last few weeks, just as a recap, we've been working our way through this book, and we've, we've seen a lot so far, a lot has happened. We've seen Jonah, who was a prophet, who was called by God to go and tell the people of Nineveh, who were a part of this horrible, evil culture and nation who were opposed to God completely. And Jonah was to tell them of coming judgment for their sins. Even so, though, the book of Jonah is about the uncommon grace of God, showing that Jonah wasn't uh, that God wasn't just about judging Nineveh. That wasn't the point. But he was interested in winning the Ninevites' hearts. And he was interested in winning Jonah's heart. And in this book, we've observed God's call to Jonah to go and preach. And then we saw Jonah flee in precisely the other direction. Last week, in fact, we saw Jonah hit rock bottom after fleeing. He experienced God's judgment. He was swallowed by a fish and then repented. And then he prayed this beautiful prayer that was taken bits and pieces from the Psalms that he put together and prayed as his own and then was deposited back out onto dry land. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. So will you join me in opening your Bibles or your phones or wherever you have God's word with you this morning to Jonah chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, just reach into the pew in front of you, grab a Bible there. 
Um, And again, turn to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. So let's begin by taking just another quick look at those first few verses of this chapter. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it what I tell you. These words may sound familiar to you, and that's because these verses are almost a verbatim repetition of what happened in chapter one when God came the first time to Jonah. He tells him to go. He tells him what to say when he gets there, and this is super significant at this point in the story. God's coming to Jonah a second time highlights just how forgiven Jonah is just how great the forgiveness of God is, how great his restoration, because Jonah is still fresh from running from God, or at least as fresh as you can be after three days in a fish. The last time Jonah heard these words, he was like, nope, I'm not doing that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to those people. I don't want to give them your word because they don't deserve your grace, God. Not after what they've done to us, not after what they've done to your people. And I'm going to get as far away from those people and your plan as I can. And so Jonah rebelled. He ran. And even so was found out by God. He experienced a good dose of God's correction and a great deal of his mercy. And now he is standing here experiencing God's restoration hearing the same commissioning words as if it hadn't happened before. And God said, go to these people, tell them what I want you to tell them. God could have easily rejected Jonah after what he had done. If we're honest, that probably seems like the normal, rational thing to do at that point. Jonah was a proven flight risk. 
And that's honestly what I would have done if I was there, right? God could have showcased his mercy in saving Jonah's life. He could have used him in other ministry, maybe, and then used a different prophet or a different means of reaching Nineveh, different way of showing his grace. But he didn't. It pleased the Lord to use Jonah. It pleased the Lord to use a broken but redeemed and restored man to accomplish his ends. There's something super powerful in that, something that should resonate deeply within us. God doesn't require people to have everything in their lives together in order to serve him. We don't have to have our lives together in order to serve him. If he did, there wouldn't be anyone eligible. There would be no one left to do anything. Romans reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's that's not most have fallen short or that some are okay, but all. And it's not just a one-time falling short. I think all of us recognize that, right? It's a continual thing. And we fall short so often. I'm pretty sure that some of us, most of us maybe struggled with sin at some level before walking in these doors even this morning. Maybe it was being unkind to our children as we prepared and we came Maybe it was just indulging in judgmental or prideful thoughts as we read the paper, thinking like, I'm not like those people, or how could they believe that, or how could they do that, right? The fact is, whatever happened, all of us are broken. All of us are sinful. All of us have moments when we, like Jonah, say, nope, I'm I'm not going to do that, God. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my way. Does that disqualify us from serving God? No. Instead, just as he did with Jonah, God leads his children to repentance. From repentance to restoration. And then from restoration, he chooses to use us again to further his plans, to do his work. Let's just lean into that for a moment. Earlier this summer, as a church, we went through a study on the life of Abraham, and we saw that Abraham screwed up a lot, and he messed up over and over in the same ways, and yet God saw fit to use him. God saw fit to restore him and shower him with mercy and blessing. He made him the father of a great nation, just like he promised he would. And the question I think we have to ask is why? Why would he use Abraham like that? Why would he restore him? Maybe the question is, why would he use me? Why would he choose to restore me? Was something in Jonah special that he was restored? Or Abraham? Could it be that, you know, like something is in me? And the answer is no. It's all about God. He restores us, he bought us, he loves us, he showers us with mercy because it is all about him. He delights in showing those parts of his character to us. And this book of Jonah ultimately is about that. It's all about God. It's him showing his mercy. It's him showing his characters of restoration and his desire for that. And it's, it's an outlet for God to show us ultimately himself. This book is all about God. So he decides to have mercy on the Ninevites, and then he does. 
He decides to send Jonah as his prophet and to use the opportunity in order to work in Jonah's life. So he does. It's all about God. He makes much of himself and he shows it to us that we might join in the praise. And if you step back and take a look at the book, it positively drips with mercy and care. It's all about God's care for and love for people. And not just Israel, but for everyone, all of the nations. He loves Israel, yes. He loves Nineveh, even though they were an evil people. He loves the sailors on the ship in, in, the, in the first chapter that we see that even he redeems them and that they respond to God's word. They believe the truth. And when Jonah repents, God has mercy. The Ninevites who delighted in doing evil repent and God shows mercy. And I think taking a step back and looking at those verses again in verses one through three, this commissioning call to Jonah, it should be noted that God's requirements in this passage to go and to prophesy haven't changed. Jonah isn't told like, hey, it's okay, you had a hard time with that, so we're gonna do it a different way. Right? God's righteous requirement, his desires for us haven't changed just as they haven't changed for Jonah. God's word is still the same. His requirements are the same. Instead, what has changed between chapter one and chapter three, what has changed is Jonah, not God. God worked in Jonah's life to bring him to a place of obedience so that when he was presented with God's desire, he obeyed. And then he set out for Nineveh. Once he was there, we see in verse four that he proclaimed the message of God, saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he did what God asked him to do. Although, spoiler alert, maybe his heart wasn't fully in it, as we'll see in the coming chapter. He was still desiring for judgment. And I think it's fascinating, as, as you look at this proclamation, there's a grammatical nuance that is utterly fascinating and delightful because we know that Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. And so he chose the word overthrow um, to hearken back to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. That word overthrown is in fact the same word that was used in Genesis to speak of the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were utterly destroyed, wiped out. But this verb in Hebrew doesn't just mean destroyed. It can mean something to change so significantly that it is overthrown or turned over, like the essential essence of something has been turned over. Psalm 30 uses the same word in verse 11 to say, you turned my wailing into dancing. That something that was deep and sad and grievous that was, would cause wailing was turned into joy. It was turned over or overthrown. Deuteronomy 23.5 says that the Lord your God turned, that same word here, overthrew or turned over. The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. And it's fascinating that this proclamation of Jonah came true. That, jo that, that Nineveh had 40 days and it was overthrown. 
But that overthrowing wasn't what Jonah had desired. It wasn't what he saw. It wasn't the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, God chose to overthrow Nineveh's nature. He wanted their repentance, not their deaths. And repent, they did. It's amazing to me how God, in his power, uses the proclamation of Jonah. The city is seen to respond strongly. There's this urgency in the text that there was a revival in Nineveh and God worked in the hearts and the minds of the people there. They were like, yes, we will repent. We change. This is, this is what we want to do. And there's evidence of that. And take a look at verses five and six with me again in this passage. It says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. They repented from the great to the small. Even the king stepped off his throne, took off the robes, it was like, yes, there is a higher authority. There is someone I bow to. It's serious. I think it's fair to ask the question how that's even possible, right? With this, this message of God that we're told that there will be judgment. It was a big, a big change. Jonah shows up without preamble, without explanation, and says judgment is coming and the city repents. And there are a lot of really smart men and women who have asked the same question, who have said, like, maybe Jonah said more. Maybe he included instructions on what to do next. That's totally possible. Some say that God must have orchestrated events so that the Ninevites' hearts were prepared for this message. That's possible. But I think, ultimately, whether that happened or not is not the point. Because at the end of the day, we have God's word in verse 5, saying that whatever happened, the Ninevites believed God. And they had a belief that was more than just head knowledge. They had investment. They sat down and they were like, yes, this is real. We need to do something. It wasn't just, oh, I believe that that statement is true. But they acted on it. There was an immediacy and their actions show trust. They believed God was going to judge. They believed destruction was coming and it was real to them. And their lives evidenced this. Because these things that they did, they fasted, putting on sackcloth, they're indications of mourning, of deep-seated grief over something. They're not something you do lightly. They're life-interrupting repentance actions. And when the king hears Jonah's message, he joins right in. He issues a royal decree formalizing the fast that was already taking place and says even the animals should join in. Like, nothing should happen. Don't feed the animals, don't spend time, don't feed yourself, repent. He says that the people of Nineveh were to give up their evil ways and their violence, which as we've talked about in previous weeks, it was like a cornerstone of their society. They relished the evil that they did. It was part of the warp and woof of their culture. And he says, no more. 
Repent and turn. Go 180 degrees away from the way we were going. We need to repent. And that's the definition of repentance, right? Wholeheartedly turning from evil and pursuing good, turning from what you desire and turning to what God commands. I think verses eight and nine highlight their mental state. There was hope, however small, however tenuous it might have seemed at that moment that God would relent. But we see no assurance in the king's words there. Who knows? He says, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king didn't presume that God would spare them, but instead he urgently threw himself and his nation on God's mercy. When was the last time that you were that distraught over your sin? Have you ever been? When was the last time it was such a big deal to you that you were willing to interrupt the normal daily activities of your life and repent? Did you just pray a quick like, sorry about that, God, I will do better? And then move on? Did you just think, I'll deal with that later, put it off and maybe forget about it? It's worth thinking about. Do we agree with God about the sinfulness of our sin? Or do we sugarcoat it or dismiss it as not important or just ignore it and hope it goes away? It's worth thinking through. And with Nineveh in verse 10, God says he saw what they had done, how they were turning from their evil ways, and he relented from the punishment he had threatened. He didn't carry it out. He had mercy. He showed love and kindness. That's the God that we serve. In our own life, that's the God who assures us of acceptance if we repent. God who relents from judgment and death, instead freely extending mercy and life. And you may be asking, how is that possible? How could God relent? Isn't he a just God? Doesn't he hate sin? How could a just God not punish a nation as evil as Nineveh was? The answer is that God relents because Jesus Christ bore the judgment for Nineveh, just as he takes the full intensity of God's judgment for every single person who believes in him, for you, for me. When I was little, maybe five or six, I did something wrong. And honestly, I don't remember in this moment like what I had done. But I do remember this, that I was in my room and my parents were explaining the consequences that I would be facing. And I was crying and everything in that moment felt awful, felt rotten because of what I'd done. I'd gotten caught. It was just a whole mess. My sister came into the room and asked my parents if she could take the punishment instead of me. And then she came over to me and hugged me and said she loved me and that it would be okay. To this day, I feel that love. I, was, I, think, I think I feel it more now even than I did then. The love that she would be willing to take 
the punishment and deal with it, even though she had nothing to do with what I'd done. It was overwhelming. And yet there is a love that is even more overwhelming than that. That's the love of Jesus Christ. Because he didn't just bear the judgment for a kindergartner's misdeed. Instead, he died on a cross as a substitute, bearing God's righteous, true judgment and condemnation for all the wrongs in this world of past and present and all of the evils that Nineveh could dream up, all of the racist thoughts or idle gossip violent outbreaks and casual hatred of a hundred generations of humanity. He bore it, and he bore my sins and yours. He bore them so we would not have to. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and now stands ready with arms open, ready to say, I love you. You're okay. I've got you ready to bring us peace instead of judgment, to restore us. And just like the Ninevites, all we need to do is repent and believe. It's free. And even they repented in a hope that God would repent. In light of scripture, though, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we know God will forgive us. It's a sure thing. He has never turned anyone away. He never will. And think about the nation of Nineveh, right? We've talked about it. They were known across the world and have been known across history for perpetuating all manner of evil, and God freely forgave them. Friends, if he freely forgave them, he will freely forgive you. I guarantee there is nothing that you have done that approaches that magnitude of evil. Even if there is, God stands ready. Our sin has been paid for, it's done, it is finished, and you will not be turned away. So let's make this practical for a moment. I know, I think we all know that we still mess up. We don't always do what's right. And even after we've repented originally and we're said, yes, I believe in God, we sin again. And the Apostle Paul famously said, right, like, I do not understand what I do at all. I do, like, I don't, I do what I don't want to do and I do, don't want to do what I do, right? Um, all the things. How do we handle that? And the answer, I think, is twofold. And maybe it sounds a bit silly or simple at first, But as believers, I think we should make a habit of striving and resting. That's the biblical pattern. We strive to follow God's commands that we find in Scripture. We strive to follow his heart. And then we rest on his grace and mercy and trust that he's got us, that we are okay. And then he'll continue to work on us. When we sin, we should repent and turn again from evil just as the Ninevites did. And then we strive to follow him again. It's a cycle, right? It becomes part of the warp and woof of our lives because God does not abandon his children. Admittedly, there there may be times of correction and chastisement. There may be consequences. I think we can see that clearly in the life of Jonah. But we can see equally as clearly the restoration of God. God will restore us, 
And more importantly than that, in this whole process, nothing changes regarding our status before God. Timothy reminds us that if we died with him, we also live with him. And then a verse later, he says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. It's that wonderful thing. Christ died as our sacrifice so that our sin was placed on him and his righteousness was placed on us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees the righteous life of his son. And God cannot deny that. He will not deny that ever. And so that's what leads us into into this wonderful life where God promises to finish the good work he began in us, to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It's a sure thing. So I think it's good to ask, what should we do now? In light of all of this that we have seen, in light of the restoration of Jonah, in light of the repentance and relenting of God that he shows to the Ninevites, his mercy. What should we do? What should change in our lives today in light of this passage? First, be impressed with our God. It's the point of this book. God delights in mercy. He delights in bringing people to himself. If this book was about a God who dispensed justice, it would look so different. Jonah would still be at the bottom of a sea. Nineveh would be destroyed, and we would have missed a ton of insight into the heart of God. God does love justice, but alongside, he loves mercy. He's a God who cares about all people and all nations and all races on an individual and a corporate level, both. He cared about a single prophet named Jonah, enough to restore him and use his ministry mightily. He cared enough about an entire nation of Nineveh to pull them out of rebellion and sin and usher them into the family of God. And he cares about me and he cares about you. He loves you enough to make a way through Christ where you can be with him forever. All you have to do is repent and believe. You'll be made new. You'll be made more and more like Christ. He's a God of mercy. Be impressed with him. Give thanks to him. Who else is like that? Be impressed with our God and worship him. He deserves worship for all of those things we just mentioned. Put him first. Put his desires first in your life and work to treasure what he treasures and hate what he hates. Worship him and sing loudly, right? Like, even if you feel like you can't sing, even if it's out of tune, respond and sing because you're loved. Let your joy show, right? Because we have been taken from death and misery and brought to joy. He has overthrown your heart just as he has overthrown the nation of Nineveh and their hearts. So worship him. Express your love in turn. Pray to him. 
because he has made a way. He has given you access. Make it a daily habit to talk to the God who cared enough to die for you and wants to talk with you. So sit and enjoy the conversation. Let it not be a chore. Talk to the God of mercy who restores you day by day and hour by hour, who has brought you from death into life. He just wants to talk with you. Lastly, if you're in him, know that the same God who is full of mercy and compassion has promised to finish what he started the moment you believed. That means day by day, repentance after repentance, failure after failure, we're being made more like Christ. And just as sure as our salvation is, that if we repent and believe that God will work in our lives, this is a sure thing. Even if it's slow, there will be a trajectory of growth and restoration over and over, that our sadness will be made into joy over and over, and that just as Jonah was restored, just as Nineveh experienced God's grace, so we can fully take of that grace day after day and experience his love, that we will one day look upon our King of mercy because he has loved us and worked in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to make much of you. We want to be impressed with you. And often we aren't. And we ask your forgiveness for that. We want to turn and to follow you. We want to love you more and better. And so we ask that you would show us how. We ask that you would continually work and restore us, that you would give us a desire for your word, that you would give us a desire for Christian fellowship that would point us to you and the common mercy that we have in you. And Lord God, we ask that we would experience your joy, that you would let us partake of the joy you have promised in Christ, that we are your children and that you have us and that we are good, and it'll be okay. So as we just continue this morning as we worship, Lord God, work in our hearts. Let us see you as the God who you are, a God who moves us from death to life. It's in your name we pray, amen.